Alrighty, hello again everyone. Welcome back. It's your favorite time of the week. The time of the week that you spend each waking moment in desperate anticipation of. It's finally arrived. And uh, this is the portion of that favorite time of the week when I basically just kill about 90 seconds uh, waiting for people to file in and uh, hopefully waiting for Richard to arrive. My assumption is that he would be here as normal, but, you know, sometimes life can throw, uh, throw you some curveballs. And I guess I use that stock metaphor because I have the World Series on in the background, which I'm not going to get distracted by. And not that I'm super into baseball or anything, but, you know, sometimes the World Series can be uh, a tad exciting. So uh, even just as a background, uh, background stimuli, I, uh, I tend to put it on this time of year. Um... Let me just quickly uh, send a message to Richard just to ensure that we're on the same page about doing this call-in right now because we didn't do a whole, any uh, pre- preparation for this particular episode, so let me see if he's around. Um... All right, well, uh, in the meantime, oh, there he is. Hello, Richard. Yeah, hey, Mike, I was just, I didn't have a chance to read your article, but I did listen to the clip of you bothering that guy, how do you say his name, Malkowski or whatever? Malinowski. Bothering, that's a, that's one way. What did you say, it. how do you say it? Malinowski. I mean, him? when you say bothering, I mean, I would more put it as attempting to interview, but I, uh, how, how did I find him? Um, well, he was, it was after an, uh, it was, I went to a campaign event. There was a campaign event in Rahway, New Jersey last weekend. Um, uh, Tom Malinowski, this Democratic congressman, he's in a district that is a fairly uh, tightly contested district in New Jersey. Uh, he first won his seat in Congress by defeating a Republican incumbent in 2018, then he very narrowly won again in 2020. And then for 2022, uh, the district was redistricted be to be slightly more Republican-leaning. Um, so he's... Yeah, he might be finished, and uh, I mean, he probably would have been, there was a decent chance he would have been finished anyway, even if they hadn't changed the composition of the district marginally. Um, But he's also someone who is of interest anyway, because, you know, as I mentioned, in 2018, he was one of these uh, incoming uh, Democratic uh, Congress members who had an outsized proportion of, of, uh, the outsized proportion of that Democratic freshman class were like drawn from yes, the depths the of like various facets of the national Virginia, security state. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, well, yeah, there are uh, there are two in Virginia: Abigail, Abigail Spanberger and Jennifer, uh, and um, mm-hmm. uh, Abigail Spanberger and another one whose name I'm blanking on. There's Alyssa Slotkin, yeah, who is CIA, CIA in uh, Michigan, um, and others. Yeah. Yeah, well, and uh, Malinowski, he wasn't CIA or anything, but, you know, very similar mindset in that he had uh, worked on sort of like the national security portfolio in the Clinton administration, where he became wonderful friends with Antony Blinken, the current Secretary of State. Malinowski t- continues to brag about this to this day, because um, he, if you read the piece, uh, he and uh, he and Blinken, you know, they were on the same indoor soccer team together, and there's like a photo of them all gathered together for like the trophy ceremony where they're all, you know, like sweating from the hard days, uh, the hard days uh, work, you know, winning their title. Uh huh. They played. They were on the same indoor soccer team. Um, and so, you know, they had just won their game, apparently, and, like, been awarded a trophy. And so there's this photo of them together. Um, and then uh, uh, Malinowski then served uh, in the State Department in the Obama administration, where he was, like, Deputy Secretary of State for Human Rights wow. and Democracy. I mean, something just utterly, like, platitudinous. Um, and then, you know, he basically was uh, uh, exported from D.C., where he was a longtime you know, resident for decades to uh, run in the district in New Jersey. He hadn't lived in New Jersey, as far as I could tell, since he was a child. Uh, but he was born. He was, you know, uh, he was not born there. He was actually born in Poland, but he was, you know, had, had his childhood there in the Princeton area. Um, and uh, so, so Malinowski is someone that I have wanted to speak to specifically on foreign policy and in particular Ukraine war policy because Malinowski is not like a typical congressman in terms of his portfolio and work output, right? Like a lot of congressmen, once they're elected, they try to keep their head down and uh, maybe do focus on constituent services. Don't try to, you know, make a name for themselves really about on any particular issue. Not so with Malinowski. Malinowski really dove headfirst into being like a point person on foreign policy issues with this sort of State Department inflected uh, uh, sort of mindset. And in particular on Ukraine, I mean, if you look at his legislative activity since February, like the bills he's introduced or co-sponsored, a a solid plurality of everything he's done since February has been related in one way or another to the Ukraine situation, right? So this wasn't just some congressman who, although they vote on the appropriations bills or whatever, it's not like – an issue that's in their wheelhouse. This is avowedly within the wheelhouse of, of Malinowski, right? Um, and he even goes out of his way. Like, so one thing, if you watch debates that take place in uh, have taken place in, recently in the for the campaign for the midterms, one thing that uh, incumbent congressmen try to do, and I'm using congressmen. The term congressman as a gender neutral, by the way. Uh, one thing they, kind, they try to do is uh, demonstrate how they're such bipartisan actors. They're willing to work across the aisle. They've gotten so much done by crossing party lines. You know, it's a standard talking point. And amazingly, in the 
debate, the one debate, or I think there's been two, one of the debates that Malinowski had with his challenger, the Republican challenger, Tom Kane Jr., who uh, is this scion of a New Jersey Republican family. His father was the governor in the 80s. Um, that, but that, anyway, that the, the, commission, uh, the dad, was that the, was that one of the guys on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Kane Jr., he then, he then was, I think, the co-chair of the 9-11 commission. Yeah. His dad was, or this is the guy who's running now? His dad was. His father was, yeah. This is Tom Kane Jr. Tom Kane was the governor and then did the 9-11 commission. Uh-huh. Um, and, t- I mean, Tom Kane, actually, now that you mentioned it, was picked for to run that 9-11 commission. I'm not sure if he was co-chair, but he was definitely on it. Um, because he was seen as this, you know, um, very popular governor uh, who was, you know, not a hardcore partisan Republican, just kind of, you know, modestly centrist, I guess you would say, at least for New Jersey standards. He was re-elected. He was, um, you know, served a full eight-year term. Um, and uh, so yeah, Tom Kane Jr., he's been running for office since his 20s. I mean, he's actually, uh, you know, he was the uh, minority leader of the New Jersey State Assembly, so he got elected to the state office. But the first time I was able to vote for any uh, election in New Jersey when I was 18, it was 2006. And it was a Senate, um, the Senate election that year was Bob Menendez versus Tom Kane Jr. <laughs> and um, I think to my everlasting discredit, I voted for uh, Bob Menendez that year just because I wanted the Democrats to, to win in 2006. Um, but now, funnily enough, Tom, uh, Bob Menendez also has his own uh, familial uh, uh, dynasty in New Jersey where his son, also named Bob Menendez, is um, basically a shoo-in to uh, to win a house seat, actually that Bob Benetis himself previously held before he was in he entered the Senate. So anyway, um, so in that debate between Malinowski and Kane, uh, the one thing that Malinowski cited as evidence that he's willing to buck his party, right? That he's not just a down the line partisan is that uh, he's been even more aggressive than the Biden administration in demanding various interventionist measures in Ukraine. Like, he's been actually applying pressure to Biden to be more aggressive, whether it's in terms of sending weapons or whether it's uh, taking other sort of steps in terms of imposing even more severe punitive sanctions. Uh, And another one of those steps... And this was the basis for my question to him, was that uh, Malinowski co-sponsored legislation in July to designate Saudi Arabia, uh, not, not Saudi Arabia, designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism and therefore add Russia to the exclusive list of countries so designated uh, so that it would be alongside Cuba, North Korea, Iran, and Syria. Those are the only four countries that are officially designated state sponsors of terrorism by the U.S. government. Malinowski wants to add Russia to the list. Um, actually, there's a still an ongoing lobbying effort by the Ukraine government to press the U.S. to take this step. Um, believe it or not, over the summer, the Senate, by a voice vote, so unanimously passed a resolution that was introduced by Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal, another gloriously bipartisan resolution, calling on the State Department to make this designation. So everybody from Rand Paul to Bernie Sanders assented to this demand 
that Russia be named a state sponsor of terrorism. But on the House side, Malinowski co-sponsored a bill to seek to do this by a different mechanism. Um, and so, because you know, Malinowski is has spent years presenting himself as this you know sagacious foreign policy thinker and has a particular interest and focus on the Ukraine situation, I wanted to ask him about his legislative record um, at a public campaign event. So I went to the event. Um, the guest uh, speakers, the big, you know, big ticket guests that were supposed to uh, rile enthusiasm uh, at this event were uh, Cory Booker and, and Phil Murphy. I actually also spoke briefly to uh, Booker. Um, who, side note, I haven't published this yet because I'm going to use it for something else, but Booker, uh, one of the reasons Booker gave for why the U.S. military commitment to Ukraine must indefinitely go on is that Russia had, quote, attacked our election. So he's actually citing Russiagate fairly explicitly as a justification for U.S. involvement in the U Ukraine war, uh, which is not a connection you often see so explicitly um, uh, you know, elucidated, uh, but Booker did make that connection. But anyway, on on, on Malinowski, um, I, I briefly was able to ask him one quick question uh, where I asked him about a tweet that he had made in uh, March following uh, Biden's you know, infamous uh, statement at uh, during his speech at, in Warsaw where he declared that, you know, basically Putin must be removed at the climactic final portion of the speech. Basically a wa watershed moment because never before, even during the depths of the Cold War, had an American president publicly demanded the ouster of the leader of the Soviet Union or later Russia. And Biden did that in dramatic fashion. Um, and uh, when that happened, Malinowski uh, put out a comment of his own where he supported Biden's statement. He said Biden should not walk it back. Um, the moral content of that statement is is uh, clear. Uh, Malinowski said to basically affirm its legitimacy and its practical implications are inescapable. So Malinowski said Biden's call for essentially regime, regime change in Russia had practical implications that were inescapable per Malinowski. So I wanted to ask him if that meant that it was inescapable that the U.S. policy at this point is geared toward effectuating regime change in, in Russia. Um, he kind of just deflected and didn't really answer that question. So I waited around for a follow-up, right? And the follow-up was going to be on this bill that he had introduced or co-sponsored uh, involving a, a designation of Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, so I asked the question. Um, you know, his staff start to get like a little bit Adult, where they're trying to, you know, uh, basically usher me away, so I'm not able to ask the question. Uh, because even though you know Malinowski is one of these guys who you know uh, sponsors these resolutions and makes these soaring statements about the everlasting uh, uh, virtue of press freedom and that kind of thing and how it's a foundational tenet of like the American constitutional order that we're trying to export around the world. Apparently at this point, uh, after a public campaign event, he was not uh, willing to entertain any uh, free press questions. Um, 
But I kept asking because we were just walking down a sidewalk, walking down a road, and I had access to him. So I kept asking, and then uh, as you hear in that clip, uh, he basically just says – he basically accuses me of working for the Russian government. He says, you know, snidely, uh, hey, man, go, uh, go enjoy your career with Russia today, which, you know, that's a sitting member of Congress – accusing me however flippantly i mean i don't know i can't read the guy's mind maybe he does think this or maybe he doesn't i'm not sure in terms of like an actual factual assertion but all i know is that what he said is uh was to uh, accuse me of being in the employ of the russian state which is the state that as you might be aware <laughs> is considered like the fun the um number one geopolitical enemy of the united states so you know that could conceivably be pretty um damaging reputationally if I were in, you know, a field where I had to you know, worry about that. I mean, it still could be. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I know lots of people just think that about me without any evidence. But, you know, for a congressman to just blurt it out in a public venue, um, it was even it was slightly surprising for me that he did it. I mean, I, maybe I'm, I'm naive for even being surprised by any of this anymore. But I was surprised. I was surprised that he went there, right? I was surprised that that was his tactic. Um, but, you know, if you read the item uh, that I did on Substack, I guess my basic takeaway, or one of them anyway, is that, you know, this guy is supposed to be one of the best and the brightest, right? He was recruited to run for the Senate, imported from D.C. to contest this open seat four years ago. And his whole selling point was that he has this unparalleled you know, expertise on uh, foreign policy issues, and in particular the most salient issue right now, Ukraine. And it really seems that he's never even had occasion to justify any of his like, interventionist premises with regard to Ukraine uh, with a questioner or with someone who's even just gently challenging him. Um, and my questions weren't even that challenging. It was really just a straightforward question about a piece of legislation that he co-sponsored. It wasn't like I was presenting as overly aggressive or confrontational, right? I actually make a point to not do that in those sorts of situations because I know how you know easily things can be sort of misconstrued, whether cynically or or not. Um, usually cynically, but regardless you know i try to you know i make a point you know in that sort of journalistic capacity to stay calm reserved even deferential polite um and uh that's how he reacted with sort of this this petty juvenile outburst where he's you know hurling this dumb accusation that you know i hear 24/7 from my diamond dozen twitter trolls so that's the extent to which apparently this congressman, you know, who's this big expert in the subject area, you know, friend of the Secretary of State, that's the extent to which he's able to actually defend his views or positions or legislative bills uh, in public. Um, so I guess, you know, one of the lessons is that just how shoddy and uh, lowbrow and, um, and uh, superficial um, these people who portray themselves as having such like inviolable uh, convictions with regard to Ukraine it shows it shows how how ultimately sort of facile they are or ultimately how they don't have this really robust well-developed 
worldview that can be you know defended from substantive criticism or or inquiry. Um, it's really just um, it's like a uh, you know it's like a, a fig leaf really that they use to communicate or uh, convey that they have these utterly un- unassailable principles that are so well-founded and well-reasoned. But clearly, they don't, I mean, this guy in particular anyway, I mean, doesn't have the ability to even, or willingness, to even do a basic like, colloquy with a, with a journalist, with like a declared journalist about just a very you know, narrow aspect of this whole worldview that he's espousing. Um, anyway, so that's, uh, that's one thing. And um, it's... Yeah. Uh- is uh does he know did he know you i i don't know i don't think so i think his staff might have whispered in his ear ab- about me and identified me but i don't know i don't think he initially did uh but i'm not 100% sure um you know the story actually gets crazier um <laughs> i didn't i didn't put this in my um stub stack cuz i didn't want to like litigate it really uh but i'll just i'll just uh i'll explain briefly Okay, so um, as I was asking him the question, like the staff, like they enter into this defensive, like NFL offensive line uh, formation where they try to basically block me out and physically prevent me from being able to continue asking questions. And one of the members of the staff apparently signaled for two police officers to come over and like investigate as if there was like a crime in progress. Um, You know, once the officers came over, uh, you know, one of them told me that they had to look into whether there was any danger, uh, risk of a, of danger, a risk of a threat, and it, obviously they immediately ascertained that there was no risk of any threat and just kind of you know, shrugged it off. But an hour or so later, uh, I walked into this Democratic Party campaign office that was right near the town hall where the rally had taken place, right, that Malinowski and Booker and Murphy had conducted. And... Um, I walked in because I wanted to see if maybe Malinowski was there or there was some, you know, somebody on staff that was present who could, you know, take a follow-up question about this accusation that a sitting member of Congress had leveled that I'm working for the Russian government, you know, more or less effectively committing treason. That's the accusation, or at least that's the connotation of it. Um, so I walk in. I ask, um, you know, the staff sitting there if there's uh, – if he's available or they know where he is or if there's anyone I can, you know, submit a question to. Uh, he wasn't there, not surprisingly. Um, have a brief little, you know, very calm discussion with, like, some volunteers sitting in there about the incident. You know, totally unremarkable exchange, right? Um, lasts about four or five minutes. I walk out of the campaign office, and I go down the street to where my car is parked. And I, I sit there for a couple minutes because I'm using my computer in the car. Like, I mean, I'm sending an email. I'm just writing down some notes and what have you. Uh, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere... I get knocks on my window, and it's two more police officers. And basically, I get out of the car and, and talk to them. And eventually, what I'm told is that this woman, who didn't say a word to me in the campaign office, just sat there. This woman, who I later found out is an operative for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, so not like a New Jersey native, not like a New Jersey operative necessarily, but somebody who just works on any national campaign that the DCCC wants to prioritize and then gets dispatched to 
you know, aid or help organize the campaign of the Democratic congressman. Uh, she called 911 on me. <laughs> she called 911 to report, not that I had committed a crime, which I didn't, or that, not that even there was a suspicion that I committed a crime, just her apparent belief that there was some profound, like some potential of a danger. Uh, because she had then followed me out, unbeknownst to me, of the campaign office and seen that I went and go went to go sit in my car, which she thought was like sign that I was apparently, you know, a MAGA terrorist who was getting ready to, you know, throw a pipe bomb into the office or something and like pull a Paul Pelosi attack. Times. I mean, you saw what happened to Mr. Pelosi. Well, yeah, I mean, I think actually that's that's probably what informed the paranoia. I mean, they, they, these, and these people anyway think that there's like a January 6th insurrectionist hiding behind every bush. So I had to talk to the, I talked to the police, you know, basically. And then, you know, it went for, it was essentially just dismissed without incident because there was nothing to look into. But this idea that like this democratic national democratic party operative call nine one one. I mean, people. I mean, people want to deny that I'm a journalist. Okay, fine. I don't. I'm not that tethered to the label. But you know, I've pretty demonstrably done a fair amount of journalism, including at this particular. Okay, well, she event. doesn't know that. All you know, all she knows, is you're a crazy guy who won't leave her alone after the campaign rally and bothering him with questions. I know. I'm, 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 in I'm the just, I'm, just, of January I'm just saying. 6th. I'm just saying. But these are the same people who like pontificate about press freedom being under attack and all this. And you know this is what they do, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat. You know, there's so there's, there's just some irony there. But anyway, did that's that's a, that's a basic story. Did you have a? Uh, did you have a press conference, Denny? It was just you. Uh, you just were trying to talk to him after a campaign rally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had a that's standard procedure. You know, like the the politicians just kind of mingle, you know, talk to voters or whatever, and then the media who are present, they they try to you know, approach and ask some questions. I mean, I did it without incident with, you know, uh, another congressman, uh, Donald Payne. I did it with Booker. Um, even initially did it with Malinowski, but then all of a sudden they figured that they had, you know, the staff decided they have to enter into this defensive, like a NFL formation to like block me out because it's just so horrible that he should have to field any questions. So, yeah. yeah. Malinowski, so he's 57 years old. He's from... Uh, was born in Poland. Yeah. Uh, let's see. He was raised in Princeton, graduated from Princeton High School, uh, but he went to uh, Berkeley. Uh, he's a master of philosophy. He was a Rhodes Scholar. Wow, he's a pretty impressive guy, I guess. He's not a complete idiot. Yeah, best of the brightest. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but, he, but he's, uh, yeah, he's uh, doesn't seem like he questions much his uh, uh, his commitment to um, uh, the, American, the American Empire. So the uh, so this thing you said you said that this passed with voiceful voice vote in the Senate to make Russia state sponsor of terrorism, and then the uh, so like the, if they want Congress wanted to do it, they'd have a veto proof majority. But I guess they don't want to push it, huh? Um. Well, the resolution that was passed in the Senate was just like a. It wasn't like a binding. Law, right? It was yeah, just a resolution. They, wanted, they could have. They could have. The I law. guess they could. I, I don't know procedurally how that would work. It seems like, yeah, it's maybe. That's the law saying. Well, we yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it. they. I, I guess they could conceivably do that, but they, they haven't yet. Um, but that. But that was, seemingly, what the legislation that Malinowski co-sponsored would require. You know, and actually adding 
Russia to, to the list. So, but that hasn't been. So he's even going further than the Senate did when it made when it passed that resolution did, by a voice vote. Did the, did the Biden administration ever remove the uh, uh, IRGC from the um, terrorism list? Did they do anything? Did they remove anything that Trump added to the to the list? No, you know, at the last minute. Right before they left office, the Trump administration, you know, at the direction of Pompeo, added Cuba to, to the list, uh, yeah. re-added Cuba, um, and Biden still left that on. Yeah, yeah, Biden. Yeah, they, it looks like they um, they did. Uh, they they yeah they never took them off. And interesting, I mean, I, when Biden came into office, I thought that they would go back into the Iranian nuclear deal, but now, like, there's no. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There was some movement on this a few months ago, but I would I would have expected in like the first. This was such an Obama accomplishment. It was such like a Trump thing to like be so proud that he ripped it up. I would have thought they would have tried uh, to get back in, but you know, apparently they did it. I don't know if they Iranians. Why would you, why would you trust the Americans uh, well, at this point? Well, I mean the um, the uh, attaché or like the repre- U.S. representative for Iran. Like the, obviously, there's no formal diplomatic relations, but whatever like role kind of uh, equates to that. I mean, the the guy said that they find it now useless to even uh, entertain continuing negotiations negotiations around the nuclear deal. And uh, what the White House spokesperson uh, John Kirby said last week was that because now Iran is viewed as this uh, co-belligerent with Russia, you know, furnishing drones or what have you for the Ukraine war, that's basically um, abrogated. Any uh, notion of continuing to to uh, negotiate on the nuclear deal. So the Ukraine war uh, was basically the decisive factor in negating uh, those efforts, and now they seem to be um, completely uh, vanquished. And uh, you know, especially if uh, Netanyahu, especially as Netanyahu now is going to be coming back into office as prime minister in Israel. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be another uh, pressure point to basically. Uh, drastically disincentivize uh, well there's uh yeah there's a lot yeah i mean there's also the iranian role in the ukraine war which i think is going to make any negotiations any deal with iran in this context impossible so yeah the iranian nuclear deal i think is i think is long dead yep um switching topics um i saw you uh offering some takes on the uh whole Twitter uh, verification issue that apparently Elon Musk is uh, getting ready to revamp. Um, you were I saw you addressing like what like this whole idea that a journalist disclaim that the verification badge or the blue check like confers any uh, status or uh, prestige or whatever because they yeah, want to like, make it seem like they don't they don't care about it. Yeah, I don't see a lot of journalists on Twitter, but the one I, I, I do follow is Iglesias. And he just he keeps going all on, on and on all day about how uh, uh, nobody, uh, you know, nobody cares about this thing. And it's like, maybe you don't care, Iglesias, because you're like one of the most famous, you know, writers out there. But like these people with, you know, 500 Twitter followers and they have nothing but their blue check mark to like differentiate them from anyone else. Like, unquestionably, those people care. And it's like if, they, if you have to like keep saying no one cares about this thing. Uh, people care about it. Um, it's clearly like a thing. It has like actual advantages. Your, your replies, you know, get more. Uh, you know, you get notifications. Like there's a setting where you get notifications of blue check marks. Um, you know, you're uh, you're probably not going to get deboosted. You're less likely to get deboosted. Less likely to get suspended. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, it's this is good. I mean, Your I tweets are just in general; they seem to just be algorithmically prioritized, right? Like, I mean, like if you do it's just a basic search in the Twitter search bar for some topic. Uh, generally speaking, at least what my impression is, is that people with, you know, verification are going to come up higher in, like, the results. And that's fine. Like, you know, I think, like, an average person with a blue, who's, like, you know, accomplished enough to have a blue check mark is probably better than just some random, you know, nobody. Um, And so that's that's fine. Um, And actually, this is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to it, because, like, you know, I want, like, you know, I want Twitter to be a little more selective. Like, a lot of my comments, like, I go to my comments, like the replies and some of them are really good and some of them are insightful and some of them are just dumb. Some of them are just like, you know, you're ugly or like stupid points that like, you know, just are non sequiturs. And like, you know, I think that like it's good to like have like people who are blue check marks or people I follow. It's good to have those at the top. And then but then like a lot of people are excluded, but like, you know, I think pay, willing to pay eight dollars a month is like some bare minimum, right? Uh, you're yeah. not a spam or a bot, uh, so you know those people could be worth you know looking at too. And then you could have this sort of you know this sort of elite Twitter where it's like you know you sort of get like a private room. Not really. I mean the other people are there, but like you see less of them, and that's I mean that's fine. I think that's like a better product. Yeah, you know I actually already pay for that Twitter Blue service because um, you know uh, the, the impetus for paying for it initially was that I saw certain accounts being able to post videos longer than the standard limit. It was like two minutes and 50 seconds or something is the standard limit for videos that you can tweet. And I saw other accounts being able to post longer videos, like 10, 15 minutes or something. And every now and then there's a video I want to post and I have to like cut it down to uh, meet that limit. And apparently I figured out that if you buy this Twitter blue service, which is just $3 a month, I mean, it's not like some major burden. Um, today it's, it's five. Um, really? Okay. Well, I mean, the I when I got it, it was three. I, I'm charged three dollars a month for it. Okay. Um, I just got charged today, actually, for it. Um, anyway, it was you know, but then but that allows you to post longer videos, right? Um, and it actually How long? also, um, I, I I'm not sure if there's a limit. I think it might be up to like ten or fifteen minutes, or maybe even longer. I'm not sure. I just know it's much longer than the standard limit. Um. Like, there's never been a video that's been too long for me to post that I wanted to post now after I got that Twitter Blue thing for, you know, $3 a month, which is like, you know, half of a coffee. Um, and uh, it also, like, it also gives you this thing where once you tweet, you have, like, 30 seconds to undo the tweet if you see, like, a typo or something. Yeah, that is. Um, you could always undo a tweet. You could <laughs> delete it. Well, yeah, but you don't have to delete it. You could just, you know, edit, uh, you know, uh-huh. edit before it actually is published. Yeah, that's useful. Um, I should, I should have bought this. Yeah, that's useful. I, I mean, I do that all the time. I make typos and then I delete. Yeah, so do I. I mean, it's worth it just for that. For me, I mean, this idea that like, I mean, and people think, oh, it's so lame to to pay Twitter for anything. I mean, who would do that, right? Well, I mean, I mean, I use Twitter pretty frequently. I mean, I'm. It's something that I've <laughs> spent a lot of time on, and you know, have a lot of, you know social capital, if you want to put it that way, invested in. So, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, I have the the income where that's not like a huge uh, ask. And I, I feel the same way about the $8 fee. I guess my only issue is that, I don't know, it seems like it's weird. There might be some weird dynamics involved in like adding this whole like transactional thing to having the blue check. Because like if you have a blue check, it like proves... It, it proves 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming this is going to how it's work. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I, with, I surmise that if you have the blue check now, it's going to mean that you, like, you know, people, everyone knows that you paid for it, right? Yes. I think so, so I don't know. It's just, a, it's just some, there's like weird um, social or transactional now considerations associated with having the blue check that maybe it wouldn't have been the case before. Although, I don't know, maybe there's some upsides to this new system that outweigh that. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's supposed to, yeah, they say it's coming as early as Monday. Um, and, uh, yeah, people will know. I don't know if there's like, yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna, uh, uh, they're gonna ease in the new, uh, the old blue check mark. So they're gonna have, apparently, they're gonna have 30 or 60 days or something, uh, before they have to pay. Um, and I hope there's no like, you know, like, uh, you know, like, I hope we're all on an equal footing. I hope they don't give them like a double blue check or something, you know, like, cause they're verified. Um, I think that's I think that's sort of the point. So yeah, it's gonna. I think it'll be. A, I mean, it's it's a good change. I mean, I think it'll be a better product. I mean, Twitter has to. And I, you know, I think you're getting. I, I think I, I remember Musk's tweets. You also they're trying to partner with like websites to like you'll get subscriptions and stuff. Um, but Twitter, Twitter Blue already has that. Uh, they, oh, you get so, you get. Well, uh, Twitter Twitter Blue has this thing where like um, you get, you get ad- certain ad free. Yeah, like if you go if you. You, you go to certain get, links. You don't get past any paywalls that, that you wouldn't otherwise have. No, I guess no paywalls, but ad-free stuff, yeah. Yeah, uh, so it's exciting. You hear that they might branch out into porn? Uh, well, I, I well, saw something like that where it's like an only, only well, fans. Well, that's the way yeah. the media reported it. It's like they, they might have like videos in which you could charge for. So you could, make like a, you could interview you know, your friend Malinowski. And you could put that on Twitter and say, like, you know, three bucks or something to watch it. Yeah. Uh, and so, you, but you, you know, but like people are like, oh, you could use that for porn. There was some, uh, they were saying NSFW. So I think they were considering, uh, uh, like, porn stuff, which will be, you know, if people want to pay for it behind a, uh, a wall, what, you know, what do I care? Um, let's see here. Uh, not say for Twitter. Yeah. With high- well, yeah, it's basically just, they're just, they're trying to poach the model of, uh, OnlyFans in a way and just integrate it into Twitter. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's interesting. So this is a way to sort of, uh, it's funny, it's like a conservative victory. It's like, take this thing, make it a porn, <laughs> take the biggest, you know, take the biggest yeah. social media thing and make it into porn. But they won't care. All they want, yeah, all they want is not to be censored and to own the libs. Uh, so, yeah, they'll, they'll be happy. This is, I mean, this is fun. This is going to change things. I mean, the, uh, it'll be interesting, um, you know, Musk himself is like sort of skeptical, like for the thing we're talking about, like the skeptical about the U.S. Uh, policy in Ukraine. You can imagine there's going to be a lot well, less deboot. You don't think so? I mean, how? I mean, I know he did that whole thing where he posted the poll about a potential, you know, settlement outline involving, you know, ceding Crimea and that sort of thing. But how skeptical can he really be if he's now? I mean, he's still today giving assurances. That he's going to continue providing like Starlink for the joint U.S. Ukraine uh, military effort without for no charge. I mean, so how skeptical can you really be if you're providing for free um, like critical uh, communications infrastructure to the war effort? Uh, yeah, I mean he's I mean he's he's into Starlink, but at the same time, like he's have he said a lot of things about. Um, he said a lot of things about, uh, you know, negotiated settlement, angered a lot of people, like, you know, so I think that has to be taken seriously. 
you're right. The Starlink, he's like have helping in the war effort. So it's like a weird. And it's, and it's vital. I mean, I mean, the, when uh, he first suggested that he might rescind that like free provision of communications infrastructure, there was a whole flurry of uh, articles that came out revealing, you know, that what hadn't really been made clear before, which is that it's not just like he's giving internet to the people of Ukraine, right? This is actually directly, uh, uh, Starlink is directly integrated into combat operations. I mean, there are points where Ukraine uh, soldiers will have like iPads hooked up to the Starlink network to pinpoint real-time like target locations like in conjunction with the U.S., which is then feeding the in- intelligence. Um, so it's not just like a peripheral thing. It's like uh, foundational to the to the effort. There were even somebody. There was even a claim that you know during a during a spell where they the Starlink access had been uh, limited or was in, uh, unavailable. And it was like a huge battlefield uh, detriment to Ukraine, and they, and they, you know, temporarily lost ground or whatever. So it's it's uh, the centrality of it, you know, shouldn't be understated. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, the Ukrainians say it's a really big deal, uh, but still, I mean, you can do that, and at the same time, uh, you know, you know, it's like, it'd still be sort of skeptical. I mean, if you're pro free speech and you're sort of skeptical of Ukrainian maximalist names, you know, you could imagine the. Uh, the platform changing uh, on some of this stuff. No, I don't think like, actually, like, I don't think it matters. Like, I don't think there's like, you know, like suppression is like, there's like all this pro Russia, like demand out there. <laughs> like there's all this demand out there for like a different perspective. I think people are generally, uh, you know, on board with the Ukraine thing. So I, so I, I don't think opening up Twitter is going to make much of a difference, but you know, who knows? It's, uh, it'll take out its own dynamic once it starts changing. Yeah, you know, speaking of the maximalist war aims, one thing I've been trying to do in going doing some, you know, reporting on the midterm stuff is uh, if I get a, ch- a chance, ask if the politician I'm speaking to explicitly does endorse maximalist war aims. Because I don't know if you happen to see this, but last week, um, Pelosi, uh, you know, before the fateful incident with her husband, um, she was in a uh, she went to this symposium, which got very little coverage in the U.S. I only happened to see because I was looking at a uh, some of you, uh, like a Ukraine news site. Um, she went to Croatia for this like parliamentary symposium on the issue of Crimea specifically. So, laying out plans for what like quote unquote Western policy ought to be toward uh, Crimea and uh, more or less Pelosi endorsed what Zelensky had said in that at that forum which is that you know there's no victory by his lights until the Crimean flag uh, the until the Ukrainian flag is flying in Crimea again at Sevastopol or whatever um, so basically, just stating outright, and Zelensky has done this, and so have other Ukraine officials. They've stated outright that they've expanded you know, what their initial war aims had been, and now Crimea is part of the military strategy um, to, to quote liberate it. And um, one thing I want to do is get more people on the record in the U.S. government that this is what they're endorsing when they repeat these cliches about how, you know, nothing with about Ukraine without Ukraine or only Ukraine can decide the terms of any settlement or, you know, it's not for the U.S. to deny the agency of Ukraine and uh, impose any kind of limitations on their 
military or, or uh, diplomatic strategy. Because um, if that's the logic you're going with, then the U.S. is de facto um, going to be a co-combatant in some sort of planned, you know, offensive to go into like the heart of Russian territory, as, as le- at least as Russia sees it in Crimea, which has all this historic uh, resonance for Russia and Putin in particular. Um, and yet, you know, it could be it's a, it's it can be tricky to get like congressmen or whomever to actually go on the record with explicitly endorsing that proposition because obviously it's a crazy proposition, but yet it's what's necessarily entailed by their stated position, right? So I was uh, I talked to this other congressman who's a Republican from New Jersey, Chris, uh, sorry, Chris Smith, uh, that last weekend as well, and. Um, you know, he's a hardline pro-Ukraine guy in uh, within the Republican caucus. Um, so not one of these Republicans who's apparently going to take over the Congress and automatically cut off "quote unquote" aid to Ukraine. You know, if anything, it's the opposite with him. And um, he uh, he gave these little remarks at this uh, Republican get out the vote event in like a wealthy part of Monmouth County, New Jersey, and he uh, said that you know. We got to end Byron, uh, Biden's tyranny, and uh, apparently uh, Chris Smith thinks that part of Biden's tyranny is that Biden has not been aggressive enough on Ukraine, right? So uh, Chris Smith has, has this whole initiative that he, uh, through legislation he co-sponsored earlier this year, where he wants the U.S. to make preparations to actually try uh, to actually indict and prosecute Putin. Not just in like a world court scenario necessarily, but he actually – if you read this legislation that Chris Smith co-sponsored, it contemplates that the U.S. could indict and prosecute Putin in an American court for like crimes against humanity, right? So you know, I read that legislation. I wanted to ask Chris Smith, Republican congressman who's not running in a contested race by the way, so he's basically guaranteed to be – Back in Congress, he's been there since uh, 1981. He's the dean of the New Jersey delegation. Um, he got somehow got elected when he was like 28 or something, and uh, he's only 69, and he's been there for uh, you know 42 years. Uh, not that being 69 is a spring chicken, but you know he could easily add tack on like another 20 years or something, or even more, um, and like you know be there for like the better part of a century. Um, so I asked him about that, and he was complaining about how he had been you know, lobbying the State Department to take action on this whole idea of like, even a potential U.S.-based prosecution and imprisonment of Putin, which is like loony. And I asked him, like, doesn't that, doesn't that require – I mean, I asked him basically a version of the question I asked Malinowski. I mean, how, how could it be possible to indict and prosecute and imprison Vladimir Putin without engineering regime change in Russia? Like, isn't that the necessary consequence of what it is you're advocating? And he does this whole, you know, uh, he just, like, responded with babble about how, no, that's not necessarily the case and so forth. And yet he still, you know, criticized the State Department for not following up on this legislative item that he was advocating. Uh, But then I follow that up with asking about this Crimea issue. Like, is he willing to endorse a joint U.S. military offensive to retake Crimea, which would, 
again, be the necessary outcome of this whole logic of delegating decision-making power to, to Ukraine. And um, what happened was he basically just waved off the question, literally got in the driver's seat of his car in, a park, in the parking lot, and then drove away. <laughs> that was his answer. So, um, yeah, I, uh, that's what I'm trying to get do anyway, if, as best I can, trying to get as people if, uh, at all possible on the record on that. Yeah, they're, issue. they're scared. I mean, did, uh, the, did they uh, – who's argued with you? Like, uh, uh, so Lindsey Graham argued with you, didn't he? Um, I wouldn't say he argued. Um, he was willing to discuss with you. Yeah, I mean, briefly, you know, it's always pretty perfunctory when you're trying to just catch these elected officials at, like more or less in passing at, at events. They're, they try to end the, the discussion as quickly as possible. But no, I mean, I don't. I, don't, I didn't really argue with uh, Graham. The, the thing I did ask Graham was if he thought that re- Republican voters shared his views on basically maximalist war aims. Um, he said, well, I know in South Carolina they do. So uh, he apparently has uh, polling data showing that South Carolina, like Republican voters, are uh, hardcore on uh, this subject and in, in alignment with him. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. You want to, uh, you want to go to the uh, callers? Uh, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, let's go to callers. But just, just quickly, I mean, what do you, what do you make of this, of Crimea being added to the list of what the U.S. has apparently, like, committed itself to militarily. Is there something official on that? No, there isn't, but, like, I, I don't know what the inference would be if not that, because they keep saying, they keep repeating, like, the administration and Congress they keep repeating that only Ukraine can set forth the details of its, of, like, some sort of resolution to the conflict, and Ukraine is explicitly stating that one of those conditions is that there be a an offensive to retake Crimea. So I don't know what the takeaway is. Well, I'm not worried. Beyond that. I'm not worried about it because, like you know, they're they are. I mean, they're gonna like what they say, what people say now, versus uh, you know what they'll ultimately settle for is you know are different things. So uh, you know the idea, like well, you know, are we gonna say you could keep Crimea now? Probably not. Ukraine is probably not gonna say that. Like Russia has these. Russia has, like, you know, goals of at least seizing those four regions that they don't control uh, completely. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It would be like if we, if we got to the point where it, be, it became an open question, we'd just be in a different reality than we are now, right? And so, like, what people were saying now uh, isn't, isn't really the point, except, like, the fact that they're saying it now, you know, is not, probably not conducive to, to peace, yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I guess it's vaguely conceivable, but I find it a little bit hard to imagine that all of a sudden Biden and the, you know, the the rest of the administration are going to come out and say, OK, yeah, we're going to appease Putin and just agree that he can have permanent control of Crimea. But it's I mean, I think Crimea, I mean, I think the problem for getting it back for Ukraine is like militarily, it looks like a very hard thing to do right you have to come by uh you know you have to cross a very narrow strait right um or you have to come by sea and like you know it's just different from uh sort of everything else well that's where the u.s and nato come in (laughs) yeah well i mean they'd have to right they'd have to do more uh you know they'd have to be more directly uh involved and so yeah i mean we're we're a long way from that before they can even cross that strait. ukraine has to take all that area uh you know, all the area to the east. Um, so, 
you know, we'll, I mean, we'll see what happens. I don't think it, you know, I, I think, you know, it's like, I mean, Zelensky was saying pretty early, like, you know, go back to February 24th. Now that, now right. it seems like we're, we're beyond that. We're way beyond uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, both, both, I mean, I keep saying both Ukraine and Russia have expanded their war aims. Um, as the war has gone on, which is, you know, what you yeah, expect so you're to in, happen. You're a, you're, yeah, so you're in a poor, you're in a poor position to uh, have any kind of peace settlement. I mean, it's just, it's going to go yeah. yeah, I mean, I, the bottom line is the Ukraine government at every level that I can tell has very clearly and unambiguously signaled that its intention anyway, as of now, is that there will be some sort of military offensive to retake Crimea. Even just last weekend, there was another giant um, like drone strike, I think it was, or some sort of attack on uh, on uh, Sevastopol, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, you know that caused Russia to temporarily uh, withdraw from that grain deal um, for for exportation of, of grain from the, into the Black Sea. So yeah, so I mean they're not. It's not like they're bashful about stating this. I mean Zelensky has said it explicitly, and so have you know his top, uh, you know, officials and advisors. And these are the people who were told by the American decision makers are being uh, deferred to uh, in terms of setting out the overall contours of the strategy. So anyway, I, I should, at least for my purposes, if I can, I want to get people on the record who have some like uh, political power and are involved in the, uh, you know, governmental process here in the United States to address that rather than just like pretending like it's an issue that doesn't exist. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, callers. Always you're up. Um, I was wondering how long you guys think the war in Ukraine is going to last and what you think the end result of the war will be. Do you expect it to go on for uh, two years, four years? Yeah, just to give some, give some probability. <laughs> Well, that's Richard's specialty. Uh, I would say there's a, um, uh, let's see. I would say, so you have, I think it's terms of seasons. So now you have, uh, you have winter. Yeah, I would be, I'd say a 70% chance it goes like, you know, uh, the past next summer. Uh, you know, and I think that. It's probably, I don't know, if I had to guess, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a while. It depends on battlefield realities. But look, I would not be surprised if this thing went on for five or ten years. I mean, this is, you know, this is a war's can last that long. There's no clear, there is no clear, like, uh, there's no clear, like, line, right? There's no, uh, you know, 48th parallel, like, in Korea, where everyone could just go to. Like, everything is disputed. You have the February 24th borders. You have Russia is beyond those. You have the legally recognized borders of Ukraine. And, like, you know, so there's no, there's no, like, you know, place everyone can retreat to. Russia can go back to Russia and leave everything. But that's, like, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Do you think there's uh, a chance it could become, like, a conflict that's, elite, that, you know, a, ge- a conflict that lasts, like, at least a generation? Like, the Cyprus conflict or the Armenian conflict, uh, Armenian Zero conflict, or the Israel Palestine conflict, something like that. Well, those are very those are very low intensity. That's why they last for generations. So this thing would have to settle down, and you would need the lines to be uh, uh, you would need the lines to be sort of set for it to, to settle down like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, I think Russia is hoping. So, like, there's a Russia case to like end it to get the uh, you know the the winter stuff is serious. I mean, Iranian drones. This is a big game changer. Like the uh, like, so I think they're hoping to like just starve and freeze Ukraine through the winter, 
and sort of get the upper hand. Ukraine just wants to get more uh, Western weapons, and their weaponry advantage is like increasing all the time. And Russia has manpower advantages coming in. Um, so I don't know. I think there's like a case for like either side, like maybe getting a little bit of upper upper hand. But like even if they do, like who cares? How is that going to end it? Like they might make advances one way or the other. Uh, but it's you know it's still going to go on. So this is this is uh, yeah this is this is not a there's there's the out. I mean the, I, I don't see it out. I mean I, I think that there's no there's very little prospect of that but, in the future. But you're going yeah, back. and also and also I mean those other sort of frozen long term conflicts that you mentioned they aren't being ascribed with like this existential civilizational importance where like democracy is hanging in the balance and you know the entire uh, international order um hinges on whether the west meaning the u.s effectively has the resolve to see to it that you know one side is victorious um so i mean and, and just to, just to get a little edic- yeah the, the, the sino taiwanese conflict is like that but that's you know that's very very frozen but yeah anyway go on well, sorry. The, which which conflict? The, the Taiwan? Taiwan conflict. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah, of, yeah. No, that's true. That's true. That, but and, and that you know, there's a possibility that that conflict could be tacked on to this one in some kind of global, you know, uh, scenario, uh, war scenario. Um, that's not outside the realm of possibility. The, the, the head of naval operations for the U.S. warned um, just like two weeks ago or so that. The U.S. has to prepare for China to invade Taiwan by the end of this calendar year, uh, potentially. So I don't know if that's tr- a legitimate uh, prognosis or not, but um, you know, it almost doesn't matter if that's what the U.S. government is, is actively preparing for, um, because those quote preparations uh, intended to do quote deterrence often tend to accelerate the very outcome that they're purportedly claiming to want to deter. Um, such as you know the, the China initiating some sort of military uh, offensive, but the anecdote I was going to give is that I'm actually in Pittsburgh right now, and um, one of the things I did yesterday was go to an event with uh, Fiona Hill. Um, you know who this is, Richard? <laughs> oh, she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because um, I had wanted to. I, I've been. It's been bugging me for months that this uh, passage she had in her foreign affairs essay over the summer about how apparently there was some outline tentatively agreed to by Russia and Ukraine in April for uh, a ceasefire and then something happened where it just got obliterated. Um, and, to, but I, and I got I, I got an answer from her on that. I'm not going to spoil it right now. Oh. I'm, I'm just going to bracket it. Because the one the one thing I wanted to mention is that she has this line which she repeated last night at like the you know the public uh, portion of the event where like she was in dialogue with these you know professors or whatever. Um, by the way, it's so weird. This it was held at the University of Pittsburgh, like on the campus, and it was like ninety five percent old farts in the audience with like a smattering of like careerist students who are looking to get like state department internships or something. I, mean, I actually heard, overheard one talking about that, but it was all like old people who were like, think that she's a hero of Trump's impeachment. Um, <laughs> Pittsburgh, maybe not the most, uh, I don't know if it's a good school or not. Maybe not the student body isn't the most interested in these things. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's decent. But anyway, well, one thing she said, and she said this before, but she repeated it last night is that like, you know, she didn't want to startle anyone. 
She doesn't want to startle anyone. <laughs> However, what the, everybody has to realize, whether they like it or not, is that we already are in essentially the Third World War. She said uh, we're in the third great power conflict after World War I, World War II. Now we're in the, the third one. And, you know, that's what she – that's like her operating premise, right? So – that, Does that involve China? Is she counting that too in the third great power struggle? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe I think, but she's all she's she's. Uh, what I understand is the Ukraine war alone is sufficient for her to make that determination. Uh, that big of a deal. I mean, Russia is not. <laughs> Russia no, I mean, but, 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 but whether she's right or wrong, that's a very commonly held view, right? Um, or as, at least as she gives voice to it. So, if that's what people actually think. Then, I think that should mil- that would militate against some like willingness down the line to just make a uh, flat concession and put an end to the conflict because it's being, you know, would you just would you have granted concessions to Hitler? I mean, that's going to be the question. Yeah, I mean, they forget about the war on terror. That was like World War Three. Uh, this one's World War World War Four. Yeah, they, they skip over the Cold War, which seems more important than this. Um, what else did she say? Did she say anything else interesting? Oh, I mean, not really. I mean, it's funny. The um, there was this the professors who introduced her. They were so they were swooning <laughs> to <laughs> such an embarrassing degree. This one guy was saying, who kept repeating what an inspiration she is, and she. Um, she inspires especially young women who want to want a career in the national security field. And uh, this other professor was praising her for being the opposite of a pundit because she bemoaned this being the professor did that people who go on TV or like give commentaries on like Russia in particular, they tend to just be pundits, not experts. Whereas Fiona <laughs> Hill, she's a bona fide expert. And yet, when you listen to when you listen to what she says, it's all this 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 like classic pundit style speculation about like what Putin is thinking, or what Putin wants, or what he's what Putin doesn't want. I mean, it's all just like pro- psychological projection mumbo jumbo. Yeah, yeah. And she, I mean, she's she's quite a character. She takes herself very seriously. You watch her during, you know, I remember during the was it during the impeachment hearing when she's like. You know, you, I don't know, some senator asked one question. It was some stupid thing, and she was like, I asked you, Senator, please do not repeat that, because that is Russia. Like, as an expert, I'm here to tell you. Yeah, that. exactly. Inactive um, measures. Propaganda. Um, other question. Of- and also, what you, can tell, what you can tell that much of the time, I mean, much of the time, her expert, like this expert knowledge that she has is just her own, like, pundit style assessment of just information in the public domain. It's not like, like I, as best I could tell last night, she didn't reveal it. I mean, maybe she couldn't for like, you know, for, intel, you know, for, for, uh, confident, for, uh, for classification reasons, but nothing she said last night was based on anything that you couldn't see in the public domain. By the way, one thing, another important thing that she did say, actually, which was sort of newsworthy, is that she was asked a question about if she thought... Um, Republicans, if they win the midterms, are they going to cut off aid to Ukraine, right? The, the, the standard scare-mongering talking point that Repu- uh, Democrats are invoking. Right. Um, and she said that, you know, well, she's in, in pretty close contact with, with so many Republican staffers and senators and stuff. And she knows firsthand that, you know, sometimes the public rhetoric, meaning 
this uh, ostensible wariness Republicans at least claim to have about continuing to fund the Ukraine war effort, that doesn't actually match up with the actions. And, you know, don't don't get too worked well, up. Well, Michael, even if most Republicans oppose funding Ukraine, as long as like there are 10 Republicans who support funding it and all the Democrats do that, they will still, right? It's very not how it, well, That's not how it works, because Republicans have a rule where if you if the majority of them don't agree on something, they won't bring it to a vote. Well, I mean, they have they, they they would adopt. I mean, maybe they'll adopt that rule for the new Congress, but like that would have to be actually voted on as if it were a, a binding rule. I mean, so we don't know if that they're going to have that rule necessarily. I mean, they might. I don't know. Well, I, um, think, I think they all have the Hassert rule. Uh, the Hassert rule, it's called. Uh, anyway, I mean, Mike, like one thing you could just do is offer to make some bets. I mean, someone says something, you could just like you know offer to make a bet, right? You guys, uh, he's trying to get you to bet stuff. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm not into bet. I'm not. I'm not into that. You know when you had the whole like the whole Holocaust controversy. Um, have anyone followed from who, who like any friends you've lost or people who've unfollowed you back then since refollowed you or anything or. or, or I don't know. I mean, the whole Holocaust controversy. I mean, give me a break. I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be monitoring that anyways. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, like like the one friend you said who was. Oh yeah, there was one person. Um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't checked. I haven't checked. Um. Yep. Yeah, all right. Okay. All right. Thanks. Always. Always a pleasure. <laughs> um, Sheila, you're up. Hey, it's been a while. Hey, Hello. Sheila. Hey, Richard. Hey, Michael. Hey. I just thought you had a pretty uh, good tangent running on uh, Satlink, and I just saw this Starlink. Oh yeah, yeah. Starlink, and, but there's been a big discussion on Satlink, like M&A, like the mergers and the DOD defense budget prioritizing uh, satellite acquisitions, you know, down to mobile phones and Roku integration. And I'm thinking, you know, guys, the OPM was hacked by a foreign agency. I just, I just see all of this, this spray of going towards the fascination of, you know, domestic infrastructure. I'm not trying to rationalize against, you know, hardening these, but there isn't a hardening of wireless. You follow me? Like, I just saw a news release, like, this week. The FCC is kind of on their own, but national security should be kind of focusing on that. But the FCC is going to end up doing it. And so I feel like, you know, the, the DOD gets all this money. They're going to throw it at Elon Musk and they're going to throw it on, you know, spreading uh, controls or, or DOD, you know, tentacles into domestic Internet uh, byways. And that may be used for, you know, internal fraternal surveillance of us, possibly. But I don't see them actually hardening those those vectors. I mean, they've been around for years. You know, they, they're invested in everything. You know, can, can someone help me with this? I mean, it just seems like they're, they're, they're going for the slushy uh, turnaround where the, the, the generals can, can participate in investment schemes, you know, to pad their retirement or something, uh, you know, versus like actually doing national security things that, that secure nations. And, and I'm, I'm a little frustrated over it because I've seen it go on for years. And, you know, you've got, you've got these real-time threats. You've, 
like I Bricks is my favorite one to pick on, obviously. But they, you know, China's still in there. India's still in there. Russia's still in there. You know, they're still hacking away at us. You know, Shilia, could, could you could you could could you Go distill on. your point into like one or two crisp sentences, just so I can better understand where yeah, you're coming from? Having trouble, a little bit of trouble following along, Sheila. What's the um, what's the what's the idea here? Well, uh, the complaint really is that you know there's there's this big pot of money given to the Department of Defense to go uh, go endorse and go get defensible outcomes on uh, satellite and wireless. And I'm not sure where the are you worried about five G poisoning poisoning us? Are you, are you one of those? I don't think that 5G was even mentioned, but yeah, I think that that could be an application. I'm not, you know, I would unincluse it. <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the main thing? Well, I think the main thing is that I, I'm seeing that the FCC is given the charge for much of the, the domestic security, but the securing of these outlets in terms of like Department of Defense is like, well, we'll just buy it. You know, we'll buy our way in rather than finding a way to, to coordinate with, you know, I don't know how they would do it without taking it over. That's yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I guess, so what, like, I mean, my, I, I, I guess, I guess what you're saying is that like the emphasis by the U.S. security state, you know, protect, I guess in this case, the defense department on hardening like wireless infrastructure or broadening it out is, could potentially be like repurposed for some more uh, ominous. Well, definitely end. invasive because they're talking or, yeah. about getting it, you know, the sheer integration into like Roku, essentially yeah. Roku. And- <laughs> Roku. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Sheila. I'm gonna. I'll be on the lookout for uh, more info along those lines um, to maybe see if there's anything relevant to comment on. But uh, appreciate the uh, input. Uh, hello, Heidi. Hi, Michael. I was just going to say uh, what you were talking about at the beginning that reminded me of a situation that's been going on far longer than anybody thinks. Um, you're, a, you know, an even-keeled kind of guy. You're respectful and, you know, soft-spoken and whatever. But my dad isn't always. And uh, he made right. a comment, I don't know if it was like five or ten years ago, at a post office about Kennedy. I, you know, I can't really tell you the specifics because it was so long ago. About but Kennedy? The, uh, post- about yes. John F. Kennedy? My dad, yes, my dad has okay. feelings about Kennedy. He, just, he did not like him. He doesn't think he was the golden child or the golden boy that everybody else thinks. And why was, was he right? making comments about Kennedy at a post office? <laughs> I, you know, it may have been President's Day or something. I don't. Okay. That's why I, I wish I knew the details to give them to you. But my point is, is that my dad is the one that taught me to be a dissident and how and why it's the duty of any responsible American citizen to be dissident. We have to question and challenge authority is his, you know, what he taught me. And that's why it makes me so emotional uh, with him about this whole Ukraine thing, because he doesn't get anything beyond mainstream sources. And so he's all in, you know, Slava Ukraine and all that bullshit. Right. And he, he will not listen to what I have to say about the more nuanced uh, details of the whole topic because it comes off the Internet and he sees it. He, he looks at that derisively. And I'm like, Dad, where do you think where do you think the news people get their information yeah, it's from I mean, the Internet? Yeah. I mean, if he's watching CNN, they're they just 
they're just covering whatever, uh, you know, floats to the top of the uh, social media algorithm every day. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I try to tell him. But, you know, and he, he just, he's 84. He doesn't have, he has a, uh, an iPhone, but he doesn't have the, the um, wherewithal to, like, look for independent sources and doesn't trust them because basically mainstream media tells everybody, yo, you don't want to listen to the people on the Internet. They're crazy. You know, that's misinformation. That's disinformation. You know, that kind of thing. So anyway, so that's why it drove me crazy. My dad actually got uh, prosecuted, by the way. For it was disorderly conduct or something like you know some small charge like that, um, but yeah, I just wanted wanted well, to let but, you know. But what did he do? I mean, disorderly conduct. I mean, uh, did he issue some kind of threats? I mean, how could what did he? I mean, the details of the of that would actually be interesting because was, I don't know what yeah, he would have done. I, that yeah, I'll get him from him and call back in sometime. But it, it, I could just tell you that he hated Kennedy. He absolutely hated Kennedy. Okay. And that's like the thing. The thing about the Democrats, or, or, or like, did he I, burn I an effigy of Kennedy like, in, inside the post office? <laughs> no, he would have if he had one. He would have. He does not like him that much. You know what I mean? But it, it was just it wasn't. He may have swore too. He may have used a swear word. I don't know. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, but yeah, this was a small town post office in, in north northwest Wisconsin. So uh, people, I, my point is, is that everybody seems to want to force conformity these days. Everybody wants a consensus and that you know it, these people that were calling the police on you that that seems to me another indication of that you know they're they're trying to make this uh, a domestic terrorist threat you know if anybody doesn't agree with the establishment view right yeah i mean so. if i wanted to i mean with that whole incident if i wanted to i could whip it into uh, a narrative about how my press freedoms were grievously abridged and how you know like the national democratic party they want to uh use state power to stifle journalists i mean that really is in a way what happened but of course i'm not going to like mellow dramatize it in that fashion um because that's sort of just like buying into their own framework but you know it is worth oh, noting you're not that, like that given at the White is, House from CNN. Well, I mean, it is worth noting, yeah, yeah, Jim Acosta. It is worth noting that, like, yeah. given their whole melodramatic framework, this would be a perfect example of the thing that they're saying. They're uh, well, you know, we all have to vote to preserve democracy to make sure it doesn't, you know, come into come into existence. I mean, I I, I can't I, I can't I I'm not aware of a more egregious example, really, of um, you know. An infringement on press uh, freedom, if you want to put it that way, to this extent. But again, I don't want to like make it a whole personal uh, martyrdom story, so I'm not going to do that. But uh, it is no, it but is it's good that you talked about it and wrote about it. That's yeah. what I'm saying because because it is it's a small indication, but it is an indication, and we need to like I don't know course correct or something because you know this whole thing about democracy. Hey, guess what? The people of Crimea voted to be part of Russia. Doesn't that isn't that democracy? You know yeah. what I mean? And, and same thing with electing Zelensky in the first place to enact the Minsk agreements. Wasn't that democracy? And, oh, it's just, it's so frustrating. It's so hypocritical. So, um, yeah. but yeah. Oh, sorry, Heidi. I didn't mean to cut you off prematurely. Um, yeah, I mean, on the democracy point, um, I mean, Richard, did you, did you watch that uh, Biden speech last night by any chance? No, I, I didn't see it. Okay, well, I mean, he gave a primetime address reminding everyone about how democracy is on the ballot. <laughs> You thought like a month ago. I mean, was there anything new? Um, 
Well, I mean, apparently the Pelosi thing spurred <laughs> him to like reiterate it. Um, there was a big democracy on the ballot hey. speech, like literally, like oh, about a month ago. I, I don't know what yeah, what's, I, what well, he's going to say that's new. Um, oh, he he gave he gave it last night. It was like yesterday. No, I know, but um, there was like, there was one. Oh, there was, there was nothing. There was nothing really new um, at all. Right I don't know why he did it. Yeah, um, always George, you have another point. Quickly. So you oppose democracy, I guess. You're, you're the... <laughs> no, I don't support any. I'm not, I didn't vote. I already, uh, I'm not voting. Yeah, I'm a, I oppose democracy. Um, I'm actually going to try to go to a Dr. Oz event tomorrow. Um, so, uh... hey, I'll... I, I, if need be, I'll take up that mantle. Um, I'm a uh, yeah, but anyway, there's a there's a Dr. Oz event uh, just outside Pittsburgh tomorrow. Where he's appearing supposedly with the uh, one of the local uh, candidates for Congress. Um, he, Dr. Oz, as far as I can tell, has also been pretty cagey on the Ukraine stuff. So, we'll see if I can uh, get a question in. No, no, I'm against it. I support nothing. I support being ornery. All right. Thanks, always. Um, let's go to uh, Phil. Hey, Phil. Hi, coverage. Hey. Uh, I guess it makes you an anarchist, Michael. It, it's uh, uh, don't vote. It only encourages them. <laughs> I don't think you have to be an anarchist to come away with that uh, somewhat cynical conclusion. I mean, I mean, I tweeted this earlier. I tweeted this earlier today. I mean, but one thing. I mean, basically, what I find myself doing every election cycle now is making the case for why abstention is actually a valid choice. Not that I'm, a, I'm demanding everybody do it, right? But you know, this idea that you're this, uh, you're this, uh, you know, irresponsible, uh, reckless uh, citizen who. Ha- can't possibly like be engaged with the civic process if you choose, make a re- reasoned choice to abstain from voting. Um, it's ridiculous. I mean, these cultish demands that everybody vote to like re- to empower one or the other like ridiculous party coalition. Um, that I find to be very annoying. Anyway, sorry. It's a, it actually was a button from about nineteen. No, no, I know. I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. I've uh, seen it recently. I mean, you know, that's still around. Yeah. Uh, and just a caution to both you. Uh, it's a bumper it sticker. Heidi. No, no. <laughs> uh, to uh, Heidi, don't forget uh, on that con- that last conversation I think you had with Heidi, uh, Hitler was elected. People will remind you about that <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Or the Nazi so party. The Nazi party was, you know, received one of those. those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, listen, what I uh, uh, want to react to was two sessions ago. Uh, at the end of the conversation, uh, so it was too late to comment on it. And I, I can't remember what triggered it. But it was the relationship of, of, of Trump, uh, Russiagate, and what that did to things. And it, it got triggered again tonight when you're talking about Fiona uh, yeah. and, uh, and and uh, Malinowski. Uh, you know, they, we, we, our government and Booker and Booker, with these Booker said it specifically. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's all these expats, uh, particularly from Eastern European countries. But the, but what's interesting, and I, I thought maybe you guys could riff on for a little bit, was, you know, this really is, a, you know, kind of how, how Trump broke everything. Because it seems to me 
that uh, if you read uh, 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 Barack's comments in 2016 in that Atlantic article that I'm sure you're probably aware of. Barack Obama, not Ehud Barack, right? No, no, no. <laughs> not Ehud, no. Okay. Uh, uh, Barack Obama. And uh, anyway, there was an article uh, where he's kind of interviewed on the uh, Ukrainian situation. Yeah, it's an interview with Jeffrey Goldberg. Right. And it's it's actually, I mean, it stands up. Someone asked me what my position is. I said, well, that. (laughs) It's it's a classic realist position that, you know, that uh, uh, Ukraine is not in our uh, critical interest, but it is in Russia's critical interest, that there's a history, and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, it's a very you know, thoughtful, uh, uh, cautious yeah. uh, look at foreign foreign policy. And I said, how do we go from that to where we're to at this. now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How the yeah. hell did that happen? Yeah, you know, and, you're and right. The only thing I can yeah. think of is, is that Trump broke everything so much that it ended up empowering the blob, you know, this kind of expat bureaucratic blob that is now running our foreign policy. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, <laughs> I also, that, I think it was a leader. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that whole 2019 impeachment, I mean, people, I think, still underappreciate the significance of that impeachment. Well, that's where, that's where Fiona Hill made her name, right? As this right. figure who's now on a constant Vin, lecture Vinman, tour. Uh, Le- yeah, Vinman, exactly. Uh, Maria Yovanovitch is another one. Um, Ambassador Taylor, uh, there are, and there are others. McFall, you know. All well, I mean, McFall was kind of McFall was kind of around anyway. But yeah, um, I mean, Fiona Hill repositioned herself as this bold, you know, antagonist of Trump because she resigned from her National Security Council position to to testify at um, at that uh, at the impeachment hearing. Hence, why she's still now on uh, three days. Three years later, on this never-ending book tour, where adoring crowds show up to praise her courage um, and like nod in solemn affirmation as she rattles off some of the most hawkish interventionist talking points you could ever hear. Um, at least that's what I that's, that's what I experienced uh, last night. But uh, yeah, I mean, whatever happened in the interim between 2016 when Obama made those comments to Jeffrey Goldberg, which, as you mentioned, yeah, were pretty much a classically realist interpretation of the significance of the Ukraine situation. I think what Obama effectively said was that Ukraine is never going to be a as much of a high priority interest to the U.S. as it is to Russia. So therefore, like the intensity, the intensity, the intensity of our commitment to Ukraine will never match Russia's, and we should therefore not make policy that gets ahead of like what we're willing to commit, right? Well, yeah, don't don't bet against the House; they have the executive escalatory advantage. <laughs> but right, gonna, but, but the, you can up it. He's going to have to up it, or right. I mean, it's it's existential for him. What I was going to say, though, what I was going to say, though, is that you're right in that whatever, like even minimally realist sentiment Obama expressed there in 2016, whatever happened in the interim between now, it's been abolished. It's been obliterated where you're not even allowed to voice any sort of realist sentiment with regard to Ukraine, meaning the Obama's position in 2016 is now verboten. Right. Right. And a lot of the reason for that has to do with the radicalization um, that Trump like the cross 
ideological radicalization that Trump ushered in, meaning he, in uh, in large part, radicalized like the center center left to be even more extreme uh, in their views on everything to do with Russia on a domestic level and a uh, foreign policy level, such that now the only acceptable position, if you're a democratic politician, is to be the antithesis of a realist and be this like messianic, you know, crusader, crusader, right, which is basically, you know, which is which is exactly, um, you know, what the 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 actual neoconservatives were in a slightly different context. Now they're they're of that same disposition, more or less, but tailored against uh, Russia and even, you know, by extension, potentially uh, China. It's amazing. It's quite amazing. <laughs> Anyways, it's worth continuing. I keep looking for more articles along those, from some of these folks. I mean, the only people that have been consistent is, uh, I think, uh, probably Lindsey Graham, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With the, with the McCain position. So they're kind of consistent, at least. But everybody else is uh, run. But the but the interesting part to me is what it's done to. I mean, I'm serious. Who is leading our foreign policy? I have not heard an articulate representation or thought of a broad foreign policy. Uh, yeah, it's Joe that? Biden. For, I know. It's, I, I know. People <laughs> like to think that Joe Biden can't lead anything because he's mentally decrepit. But no, I mean, this is Joe Biden is an adherent to that messianic liberal interventionist. School of thought, uh, especially as radicalized in relation to Russia. It's been his one of his very few uh, consistent convictions over the course of his career. So Joe Biden's leading. Obviously, the operational day-to-day yeah. stuff gets delegated out to others. But Biden is the one who's setting the trajectory. I mean, I don't know why people are so resistant to a- apprehending well, that. Well, I would have thought maybe he would have gone for dividing Ukraine. <laughs> Which no. seems to be his his old standby. But uh, but look, I let you guys rip on that. Yeah. But thanks for taking yeah. so much. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Richard, do you have any uh, have any any thought on that? We've talked about Biden before. I don't. Yeah. Think I agree with you. He's not as senile as people think, and uh, he's pretty consistent in his views. So, yeah, I think that's right. All right, uh, let's go to one last caller here. Uh, Iggy, you're up. Hey guys, um, I'm just kind of wanted to quickly revisit the sort of the Musk Twitter thing, but in just a bit of a bigger sense because, I mean, essentially, on a very local level, if, if users of Twitter don't really actually have a have much of a much transparency, how are they going to know really whether things like the algorithmic side of, um, of of speech control, shadow banning, and so on and so forth has changed? And if you don't know that then really there's a degree of theatrical perception management that can still be occurring in the platform that may not mean it's radically changed that much. That's just a a thought. But also, when you look at the voices that that are on there, I mean, Biden in his speeches has literally lied, um, saying his son died in Iraq and gas was $5 when he took office. I mean, both of those are basically lies, right? You can't... How senile do you have to be if you're able to, to run foreign policy but you can't remember where your son died, and you, you are literally uh, misrepresenting a numeric value which is available for graph before you before you went and made that speech. Now, if, if Twitter is not prepared uh, to brutally fact-check everyone with an even hand, or not fact-check anyone any, at all, then there's still questions over what exactly is free speech on that platform. And 
in context of what Musk is, he is an oligarchical military industrial security contractor who's directly involved in the privatization of, of NASA. Um, he prov he's provided Starlink, which is, let's not be naive about this, he, he has provided military intel network capability into a war zone. The first right. thing he's done, not not internet for the benefit of of the Ukrainian people. That's not what he's provided, right? Because right. you need you need a multi thousand dollar terminal to access the signal, right? So that that wasn't going to be handed out to just like people in a flat block to share. It's it's in Azov's hands and all the rest of them. So on that basis, why should anyone expect well, wait, just a surface narrative from Elon Husk? Just, just Elon to clarify, Musk, and what, what, yeah. Uh, so. I, I actually, I'm not sure I fully appreciated this. In order to access Starlink, you need a multi-thousand dollar terminal. So in other words, ordinary Ukrainians who are like not combatants and are just in their flat flat somewhere, they don't get access to Starlink, right? Because they don't have the terminal. Yeah, right. I was reading that you need terminal access. So you either need a direct terminal or, and I can just check this whilst maybe you guys respond just to make sure I'm not completely bullshitting the world, but... Um, or you need some kind of distributor so that it will take the signal from the satlink and then convert that into something else a device can connect to. Without that, I don't think you can use it to use the system. Okay. Yeah, I mean... So, so yeah. my question is, ultimately, with these things in mind about Musk, Twitter, and, 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 and why, why, why should we not look at Twitter, Musk, and say... Everything that we read and, and perceive about him is more is is theatre. He's an oligarch involved in the military industrial security complex. Yeah. Richard, what's your uh, what do you make of that? I mean, yeah, I mean he's a he's a military contractor. Uh, that's true, um, but I don't think it works in a way where uh, you know everyone is on the same and everyone has the same ideas and what happened. Uh, I think that he has different uh, issues. Um, you know, you say, how do we, how do we know? Uh, you know, like with the algorithm of like we don't know. I mean, how do we know anything? I mean, you know, it's just we we, <laughs> we just go out there and try to notice if anything is different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there, I think there's a reason. I don't think I agree. I think there's reason to be excited about uh, Musk taking over Twitter because I don't like the way it's been run so far. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's worth being mindful of his role in the defense contracting realm. Um, he has a lot of variegated business interests. That's one of them. Could that influence how he manages, like, the back end of Twitter in some sense? Yeah, it's conceivable. So I think it's definitely worth being attuned to. Um but I don't know. I mean, I think he's in a lot of ways like a wild card. I mean, I can't know for sure what really is going on in his mind in terms of his intentions. I guess we'll just have to like evaluate what the end result is, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's not like a hugely incisive answer on my part, but that's really the best I can come up with in terms of uh, judging his ownership of Twitter and what like, the practical uh, yeah. impact will be. Yeah, you wanna wanna talk to Always again? Oh, all right. Thanks, Iggy. Okay, okay. Chip. Um, oh, something good. Oh, to but out. by the way, I mean, uh, I, I should have left Iggy up to he could respond to this. Sorry, I apologize. But um, 
I don't think I don't think Biden. I don't think it's fair to say Biden actually lied about the thing with his son in Iraq. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, I yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, his son. His son did serve in Iraq. I mean, as like a legal, uh, in like some. I think he was like a jag lawyer or something, and then you know he died a couple of years later. So I think it was just sort of a mush mouth. Well, Biden, th- Biden statement that he he got cancer because of chemicals in Iraq. Right, right. Just, yeah. So he said it died because of you know because of Iraq. That's what he thinks. So exactly. Yeah. All right. I'll just take what what he got. Always. Um, yeah. So uh, Mike Tracy. Um, so with this Harvard case, have you been following the Harvard case at all? And have you noticed that this guy um, is running for like the Harvard board? Of- one of the heads of fires running for the Harvard Board of Overseers, and he wants to start a bureaucrat. Um, one of the heads of what? what you know, um, this guy, Harvard Silverglade, who is one of the founders. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, he's running for the Harvard Board of Overseers, and his platform is fire 90% of all of the bureaucrats. No. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, I know. I, I've actually read one of Harvey Silverglade's books because I went to a fire conference back in the day, and they, they gave it out. Really? Um, yeah, um, I haven't been following the affirmative action case that's now before the Supreme Court. I mean, I know, you know, I guess the broad outlines of what's being litigated potentially, but um, no, I haven't been following it. Uh, but in a vacuum, the uh, that sounds like a uh, a pretty uh, compelling platform to run on in terms of you know, <laughs> trying to. Yeah. All right, thanks always, and uh, thanks everybody for tuning in, and uh, we'll uh, we'll reconvene. Soon, um, I'll do a call. I hope. I think I'll probably do another call on maybe solo uh, before the midterms, based on what I uh, come up with out here on the uh, the old campaign trail. So we'll see. All right. Uh, see you, Richard. See you, everybody. Bye. See ya. Bye.